You're listening to the Hope Assembly podcast with Pastor Ryan Day. For more information, you can visit us online at hopeassembly.org. Please enjoy this week's sermon. Hey, good morning, church. Thank you once again for tuning in to our live stream today. We're so grateful that you are here with us this morning. We're going to get right into the word this morning. Uh, We are on part six of our series, Dominion, where we've been talking about what does it look like for the kingdom of God to rule and reign or to have dominion in our lives. And we're on the second sort of section of this series where we're talking about cultural engagement. Now, the first part of our cultural engagement section, we talked about, should we engage with culture? And we said, yes, emphatically, we should engage with culture and that we should do so as Jesus did with grace and truth. And last week, we talked about that we should have this posture of humility when we're engaging with culture, that we should recognize that people have different perspectives and different stories and all of those things are okay, and that we should engage others, um, seeing them as more significant than ourselves in a posture of a humble heart. Well, today we're going we're gonna to continue this idea of engaging, cultural engagement, and then surprise, surprise, this morning we're going to talk about religion and politics. These are the two things that they say you're not really supposed to talk about. Like if you go to a barber or a hairstylist, wherever. They say, just whatever you do, don't talk about religion and politics. Well, this morning, we're going to talk about religion and politics together. Because if you didn't know, it is time to vote. We're coming right up upon the season in America where we vote for our president and many other things, but in particular for our next president. And if you haven't noticed, this has created quite a stir in our country. Um, And as of late, there have been many evangelical leaders who have made declarations to us that if we are true Christians, we will vote a certain way, that there is a particular candidate that we will cast our vote for if we are true Christians. And I just got to say off the start here that the Bible doesn't actually teach that. Matter of fact, the Bible is fairly silent when it comes to American politics since America wasn't even a country when the Bible was written. But um, needless to say, it's fairly silent about what happens in American politics. And so we have to look at the stories and the encounters of the scriptures and pull from those to try to understand maybe how we should engage with politics and religion ourselves. Now, I got to say, I must confess that I am a single issue voter. Maybe you are too, but I am a single issue voter. I believe that there is one issue that towers over every other issue. And you might be trying to guess right now, I wonder what that issue is. Maybe you think you know, you already assumed what that issue is. You're asking, man, is it pro-life? Is that what he's talking about? Is it religious liberty? Is it who will be able to appoint us another Supreme Court uh, justice? Nope, it's none of those things. Maybe you ask yourself, oh, is it social justice? Is he really concerned about social justice? Or maybe maybe it's health care. Or maybe it's climate change. Nope, it's none of those things. I am a single issue voter. When I engage in my civic duty, the single issue that matters to me is this. 
Did I give to Caesar what belongs to God? That is the single issue of greatest concern to me. Did I give to Caesar what belongs to God? Why? Because giving to Caesar what belongs to God is what we would consider political idolatry. Giving to Caesar what belongs to God is what we would consider political idolatry. Not too long ago, I talked about Christian nationalism and I shared a, a sermon called Wasting Our Witness. If you didn't see it, I would encourage you to go back and, 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 and listen to that. And in that, I talked about the idea that there's really no such thing. Christian nationalism is an oxymoron because we are a kingdom people. But as kingdom people, that doesn't mean that we don't engage in politics. We are a political people. But our politics, our politic is transcendent. It is above America's partisan politics. And so when we go to engage in our civic duties, which most of us, I hope, will, the big question we have to ask ourselves is, am I giving to Caesar what belongs to God? And we're going to break that down today. And it's important, again, because giving to Caesar what belongs to God is indeed political idolatry. And regarding political idolatry, David Fairchild said this, what makes political idolatry so pernicious is the way Christians coddle it as a virtue. And I don't know about you, but I've been having lots of conversations with friends who are believers and unbelievers alike. And this is constantly on the forefront of the conversation, on the minds of my friends who are believers and non-believers, is what are Christians doing with this political realm? What is happening in the evangelical world in regards to this political environment that we're in? And David Fairchild is right when he says political idolatry is so pernicious because it's because of the way that Christians coddle political idolatry as if it is a virtue. And Michael Agapito said it this way. He said, if your Christianity aligns 100% with either the Republican or Democrat Party, then seriously consider the possibility that you have made that party into an idol. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to have any idols in my heart. So this morning, I want to caution us. We're going to dive into the word here. But before we do, I want to caution us that we recognize as we get ready to read this text that you can be religious, you can be political, or you can be both religious and political and at the same time still be opposed to Jesus. So you can be a really religious person, or you can be a really political person, or you can be a really religious person who is really political and still be opposed to the way of Jesus at the same time. So let's talk about that this morning. If you have your Bibles, open up. I remember mine today. If you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 22. We're going to read verses 15 through 22. Just this small text. This is the only text we're going to be reading today. Matthew 22, 15 through 22, it says this. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, him being Jesus. Verse 16, and they sent their disciples to Jesus along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinions for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? 
Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And then Jesus said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him, and they went away. I want to talk about this little bit of text here today. Render, we've probably heard this many times, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God. First, let's give a little bit of context, and then as we walk through this narrative of this story, I just want to draw a few things out of it that hopefully will be helpful to you. I know it's been helpful to me as I've been meditating on it this week. First, a little bit of context. The Jews at this time in this first century are living underneath Roman rule, Roman oppression, Roman occupancy. Okay. And so I want to remind us just from the get-go here that the entire canon of scripture from Genesis to Revelation, right, is written from the perspective of a people who are overwhelmingly familiar with oppression. Okay, so this story that we're reading out of Matthew 22, this account that we're reading is not being told to us by a people with an American ideology, with a freedom ideology, with a mindset or perspective of the sort of perspective that we have here in the West. No, they're writing it with the perspective of a people who are overwhelmingly familiar with being oppressed. So that's important to remember as we read it. We don't want to read it at, with, a, with an American lens. We want to read it with a lens from a people who have their entire existence been under oppression for most of the majority of it. Okay. And I also want to point out that this is a real account. All right. So we don't want to look at this as some sort of story that, that, that like a fairy tale. No, this is a, this is a real encounter, a real account here. This is not a parable. And this real account that we're reading is given to us by Matthew, which is important because Matthew was a tax collector before he became a disciple of Jesus. So he was a traitor by all accounts by most Jews because he was collecting taxes from his own people on behalf of the oppressive government of Rome. So, so we're getting this perspective and this story directly from Matthew, the former tax collector. And we have to be clear here that taxes in this time are a matter of intense political tension. Like I get it right now, taxes for us, we, you know, most of us don't really like taxes. We try to pay as little as we can in taxes for sure without, you know, breaking the law. Um, you know, we make jokes about, you know, a couple things that are sure that you're going to die. You got to pay taxes, right? So we kind of make light of it every year we're paying taxes. But for these guys, the idea of taxes was a matter of intense political Tension and in particular, the tax that they're referring to here, right? That Matthew is referring to here. Most biblical scholars believe that the tax they're referring to here is what was known as the poll tax, P O L L, the poll tax. And this poll tax was paid um, by every single man from 16, uh, 14 to 65 years of age and every single woman from the ages of 12 to 65. 
And this tax would have been one denarius a year, one denarius every single year from all of those people. And a denarius, if you're wondering, is about, a, it's a day's worth of wages. A denarius equal to day's worth of wages. So this is the tax that they're talking about. And again, talk about political tension. The poll tax itself, regarding the poll tax, uh, the theologian D.A. Carson said this about it. He said that this tax is the most obvious sign of one submitting to Rome. Matter of fact, the zealots claim that it is a God-dishonoring badge of slavery to the pagans. So the Jewish zealots would declare that if you are paying this tax, you are essentially dishonoring God um, and, and, and submitting yourself to the slavery of the pagans. I hope you're catching the context here that this is definitely a very, very uh, politically charged issue that they have come to Jesus with. Now, when they come to Jesus, they come to him with this hard question, and I think it's important that we recognize that there are no easy answers. We're talking about, you know, the political season even that we're in, and how do we draw from that? How do we engage culture? Well, listen, there's a lot of hard questions and there are no easy answers. Be aware, be cautious of people who claim it's easy, it's black and white, it's simple. This is the way because there are lots of hard questions and nuanced issues that we are dealing with as the people of God living in this nation in this season and time, and there are no easy answers. And the same was true when they came to Jesus and they asked him these questions or this particular question. Now, when they ask him this question, it's not just an ordinary question. The answer to this question that Jesus has asked by both the Pharisees and the Herodians, right? The, the question he's asked, the answer that he gives holds significant consequences. And, and keep in mind, this question is not being asked in good faith. No, they're asking it in a manipulative, uh, plotting and scheming sort of way. So they're not coming to him in good faith. And Jesus picks up on this. He knows that they're not asking this question in good faith. No, that, and that this question is a what we would call a loaded question. And Jesus knows that how he answers this question has incredible significant, incredibly significant consequences to his own people, to the people around him, to Jerusalem and Rome and, and all of the relationships that are happening there. And the question, they come to him and say, is it lawful that we pay taxes to Caesar? Is it lawful? Now, this question, is it lawful? They weren't asking, is this lawful in regards to Roman law? Because Roman law was clear. It was a part of Roman law. It was the poll tax that was put upon them by Rome. So, of course, they're not referring to Roman law, but they're referring to God's law. The Herodians and the Pharisees are trying to catch Jesus by asking them this loaded question, according to God's law, should we be paying taxes to Rome? Should God's people, in essence, this is what they're asking, should God's people submit themselves to pagan rule? Should the people of God engage in the civic duties of the empire? 
Hope you're catching this. We're not just talking about taxes. We're talking about something that would radically shift what was happening in their day and time, depending upon Jesus' answer. So this isn't an easy question. This is a hard question that's being, that's being brought in bad faith, that's being brought with the attempt to, to ensnare Jesus. And Jesus doesn't give them easy answers. You imagine if Jesus was like, oh, it's simple, it's black and white. Well, here's what would happen if Jesus said, it's simple, it's black and white. If Jesus said to them, yes, just simply, yes, pay Caesar his taxes, then Jesus would be considered a traitor to the Jews, especially to the zealots, the zealots who wanted to overthrow Rome and who themselves rejected Roman taxes. And honestly, the Pharisees were hoping for this answer. They were hoping for this simple answer of, yeah, of yes, um, it is lawful to pay, excuse me, the, the, the Pharisees weren't hoping for this. The Herodians were hoping for this, that it was lawful to pay the, the taxes to, the, uh, to, to Rome. Because then if he said that, the Herodians would be like, yes, he said that they can pay taxes to Rome. Actually, the Pharisees were hoping for this answer so that they could turn on Jesus. My apologies. The other answer, if he gave a simple answer, would be no. No, don't pay taxes to Rome. That Jesus, at this point, if he said just flat out, no, don't pay the taxes, Jesus would be uh, starting what they would consider maybe an insurrection against Rome, that he would be rising up against Rome. That this idea of the refusal to pay taxes is the potential beginning of civil unrest. And, and this is sort of the answer that the Herodians were hoping for. Because remember, they're trying to catch him. So they want Jesus to say, no, don't pay taxes so that they can go back to Rome and say, this Jesus is starting an insurrection. He's inciting civil unrest. He's, he's teaching the people to not pay taxes to Rome. So there are no easy answers to this situation. As we're reading this account, we have to recognize that there are some key, uh, uh, key players in this account, right? I call them power brokers. There's a couple power brokers here that are working, and, and they're working regarding religion and politics. Now, let me simply break down what I mean when I say religion and politics. First of all, when I'm talking about religion, I'm talking about our understanding of and engagement in our faith and our worship as Christians, as re our religion, our understanding and engagement, our understanding of and our engagement in our faith and worship as Christians. When I talk about politics, I'm referring to our understanding of and engagement in our rights and duties as citizens, okay? So our rights and duties as citizens, our faith and worship as Christians, how do we engage through these? And we're working through this in this story with these two particular power brokers who represent religion and politics. First, we have the Pharisees. Now, before I get into both of these, let me, let me share that the, the Pharisees and the Herodians did not like each other at all. They hated each other. But all of a sudden, they have come together for the sake of trying to plot against Jesus. So they're coming together, although they are at odds with each other any other time, they're coming together in this particular time to try to ensnare Jesus, the scripture says. So first, 
we have the power brokers of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees represent religious authority. These were experts in God's law. These were people who believed in radical, personal holiness. And throughout the New Testament, we see Jesus's interaction with these Pharisees, and oftentimes he calls them something other than Pharisees. Uh, He calls them whitewashed tombs. He calls them a brood of vipers. He calls them blind guides. He calls them fools. And so Jesus has a fairly contentious relationship with these religious rulers of the day who are looking out for more of their own benefit, their own sort of religious nature than anything else. Matter of fact, these religious Pharisees, these people with religious authority, have a tendency towards self-righteousness, that they saw themselves as elite among the spiritual, and that they held this significant influence in their culture among the Sanhedrin, and so they had this incredible authority among the religious people of the day, and with this incredible authority and influence, they tended to function in a way that benefited themselves. Matter of fact, it was a a lawyer, an expert in the law, perhaps a Pharisee or, or one of the scribes among the Pharisees, who came to Jesus to say, what must I do to obtain eternal life? And Jesus said, well, what do you say as an expert of the law? And he said, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbors yourself, which he's basically reciting back to Jesus, what Jesus has already declared as the two most important commandments, that all the law, law and prophets hang on. And Jesus says, great, do that, you're going to live. And then the guy says, okay, but seeking to justify himself, who is my neighbor? This is sort of a a, a synopsis of, you will, if you will, of the Pharisees and their sort of religious authority and influence that they were self-righteous. They were looking out for their own religious benefit. So he says, yeah, the law says, love God and love your neighbor. Jesus is like, great, correct, that's it. And then he tries to justify his own life, his own actions, maybe the life and actions of all the other Pharisees by asking again this question, not in good faith, who is my neighbor? And this is where Jesus begins to tell him the parable of the good Samaritan to begin to define to him who the neighbor is. Why? Because the Pharisee was not looking out for the needs of his neighbor. The spiritual is a power broker with spiritual religious authority, and yet that religious authority was using for his own benefit at the expense of his neighbor. And I would caution us as we look at this Pharisee, this power broker of the Pharisee, I would caution us that we don't overvalue religion and undervalue politics at the expense of our neighbors. Don't overvalue religion, the self-righteous idea, and undervalue politics, my engagement with my civic duties at the expense of my neighbor. What do I mean by that? I don't want to be so personally religious that I remove myself from what's going on in my neighborhood, in my community, in my nation, because I'm just so religious. I'm not involved in that. And in not being involved, that it costs my neighbor something. 
I need to be aware of the needs of my neighbor and function in such a way that I value them as much as I value myself. So don't get so caught up in self-righteous religion and forget about my engagement in my community and the civics of my community at the expense of my neighbor. Meaning I don't want to legislate. I don't want to, uh, uh, I don't want to, um, influence the legislation for my personal religious beliefs only. We talked about that a little bit last week. Craig Greenfield said it like this. He said, politics is just the public discussion of the question, am I my brother's or sister's keeper? Politics is just the public discussion of the question, am I my brother's keeper or am I my neighbor's keeper, you could even say. Or he goes on to say, or do I owe anything to anyone else? And God answers that question now as he did when it was first asked with the resounding yes. Yes, I am my brother's keeper. Yes, I am my sister's keeper. Yes, I am my neighbor's keeper. And so when I engage in religion and politics, I have to be careful to not be like the Pharisees and use my religious authority in such a way that it, that it is at the expense of my neighbor. I hope this is making sense. It's just some things that I've seen as I was studying and meditating on this text. So first you have the Pharisees in these power brokers of religion and politics. And then you have the Herodians who come onto the scene, who team up in this sort of power team with the Pharisees. And they represent political authority. The Herodians, if you don't know, were a sect of Hellenist Jews, uh, Greek-speaking Jews that held significant political power. More than likely, these were an actual political party that supported Herod, and Herod was the Roman, uh, uh, Herod worked as the ruler for the Roman Empire over the Jews, right? So Herod was sort of ruling over the Jews on behalf of, of the Roman Empire on behalf of Caesar. And so the Herodians were a political party who supported Herod. And the Herodians um, would had submitted or sold themselves out to Herod um, for political expedience. They sold themselves out to Herod and, and in, of course, to Rome in the same way uh, for political expedience. They were known as Herod's partisans, known as Herod's partisans. And so it's the Pharisees who represent religious authority and the Herodians who are this partisan party for Herod who represent this sort of political authority who get together to try to stand against Jesus. Remember earlier, uh, when I said you can be religious and you can be political, or you can be religious and political and still be opposed to Jesus. Here we have this representation of the religious authority and the political authority in direct opposition to the ways of Jesus. So the Herodians, they submitted themselves under Herod and Rome for political expedience as Herod's partisans. And with this, as we're looking at the Herodians, I think we have to be careful that we don't pick up the same posture as the Herodians. 
Just like I cautioned about the Pharisees, don't overvalue religion and undervalue politics at the expense of your neighbor. I would say in regards to the Herodians, don't overvalue politics and undervalue religion at the expense of your soul. Don't sell yourself out for some sort of partisan politic because the kingdom of God doesn't function that way. You can be sold out for a partisan politic and be in direct opposition to Jesus. I see it. You probably see it all the time. Whether they would admit it or not doesn't matter. What matters is when we see people selling out for partisan politics, that they are overly valuing the politics, the partisanship of their hearts and undervaluing the sort of faith and worship and the ways of the kingdom of God, the religion aspect of it at the expense of their own soul. The Bible says, what does it, what does it, uh, what does it matter if a man gains the whole world and loses his soul? Like what good is it to gain all of this political power and expedience at the expense of our own soul, losing our own soul, selling out for something that is temporary and that is that is so much lower than the ways of God's kingdom. So don't overvalue politics and undervalue religion at the expense of your soul. I don't know if you guys have uh, followed, there's a um, campaign called the AND campaign, and AND is all capitals, A-N-D, the AND campaign. And um, a number of people came together uh, give me and where, and, and I think there's a third person that came together that wrote a book called Compassion and Conviction. It's a great book about how Christians engage in politics. But they said this, the AND campaign isn't against Christian participation in political parties. We're against Christians placing their identities and faith in political parties. We're against replacing the compassion and conviction of the gospel with flawed political ideology. Be careful not to overvalue politics and undervalue religion at the expense of your soul. Your identity does not belong in a political party. It's not that you can't lean right or lean left. It's that your identity shouldn't be in either one of those ideas and this flawed political ideology of America. So I would say this is sort of a big idea or thought. Don't use your religion to manipulate your politics and don't use your politics to manipulate your religion. Now, manipulates the key word there. Of course, my faith and my religion shapes the way that I view how I engage in politics. Of course, it shapes it. But it becomes a problem when it's in a way that I identify myself and therefore I use it to manipulate my politics or I use my politics. I'm seeing this a lot and it breaks my heart using my politics to manipulate my religion. Listen, folks, Jesus, the kingdom of God, is not some sort of token mascot for politics, transcendent, well beyond any sort of political ideology or partisanship. So these power brokers, 
the religious authority, the political authority, the Pharisees and the Herodians. In this story, these power brokers plotted to entangle Jesus in his words. They wanted him, they wanted to entangle him. They wanted to get him caught up in some sort of hypocritical statement or some sort of inconsistency in his speech so that they could call him out on it, so they could use it against him. I want to ask how many of us have also tried to entangle Jesus in our politics and religion. How many of us have found ourselves entangled in our own words, especially when it comes to religion and politics? This is why we have to be careful when we're engaging in religion and politics. And so what was Jesus's answer? I know that was a lot leading up to this last part, but what was Jesus's answer? Well, Jesus says to them, he's, he's, frust- he's frustrated. He calls them out like, you hypocrites, I know what you're trying to do. I know why you're asking me this question. Like they're not getting this over on him. But he says to them, bring me the coin for the tax. We don't know how long it takes, but they go and they find the coin. Now, remember, this is a valuable coin. It's a day's worth of wages. They go and find a coin for the tax. I, I brought in a coin myself here. I have this. Uh, I actually have this is a Canadian toonie, uh, Canadian toonie. It's a $2 Canadian coin, and it has an image on it here. Jesus says, hey, bring me the coin for the tax. Like, go get me the coin. And they bring him a denarius, which was the coin for the poll tax. And I can imagine that Jesus takes that coin and he's sort of, you know, moving it through his fingers and maybe examining both sides of the coins. I can imagine they're all looking on like, what's he going to say? How's he going to respond? What will be his answer about whether we should or should not pay tax to Caesar? And as he's turning it, Through his fingers, I can imagine him holding it up to him and saying, hey, can you tell me whose image is on this coin? What is this inscription here? Now, on this this particular $2 toonie here from Canada, I don't even know where I got this. This is the largest coin I can find. This $2 toonie, this image here in the middle of this, you probably can't see it, but it's Queen Elizabeth II in this, this toonie here. As Jesus is moving this and he holds it up. He says, can you tell me whose image and inscription this is on this coin? Of course, the Pharisees and the Herodians, without without question, without reservation, said, well, that's Caesar's image. That's Caesar's inscription on the coin. And Jesus looks at them and says, okay, then render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. But what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, and to God, what is God's? Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's. The word render then means to give back. It's like the idea of settling a debt. Jesus' answer Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's unto God, what is God. His answer shows us that our engagement with the the politics around us, our engagement with the culture around us, our civic responsibilities, that it's not an either or. Either we pay the taxes or we don't pay the taxes. But rather that our engagement is a both and. Jesus says, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. What, what does he base it off of? He based it off of the image on the coin and the inscription on the coin. 
You see the image in the eye. Whose image is that? It's Caesar's image. Whose inscription is that? It's Caesar's inscription. Fine. Render or give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But also give back to God what belongs to God. You say it like this. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but don't give to Caesar what belongs to God. And here's the problem. These two power brokers, the Pharisees and the Herodians alike, were working together to entangle Jesus. That they had given up their their, uh, allegiance to Jesus for an allegiance to Herod, for an allegiance to Caesar, for an allegiance to the power, the systems of their culture. And Jesus is looking at them all. And they would all pick up on this. He says, listen, give or render to Caesar what is Caesar's, meaning that coin, that tax, fine. But when you do that, be sure that you don't give to Caesar what is God's. And when he's looking at them, I can imagine that they're all picking up on the idea that each and every one of them, these are experts in the law, each and every one of them were created in the image of God. They understood that they were carriers of the Imago Dei, that Jesus was saying, it's fine, go pay your taxes, do your civic duty, but don't give up your soul for that. Don't give yourself over to the system. Don't allow the system to capture your heart. Don't allow your identity as an image bearer of God to be caught up in the politics and the taxes of the culture. Why? Because giving to Caesar what belongs to God is political idolatry. Now, when Jesus said that, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but don't give to Caesar what belongs to God. Identifying the difference is critical. And the way that we identify the difference is the image. The image, the inscription is the indicator of the identity. So I might be able to give the tax to Caesar, but I don't want to give my soul the image of God in me, the image of God in you over to Caesar. Because that, my friends, belongs to God and to God alone. So I'm a single issue voter. When I go to do my civic duties, I have one concern and one concern alone. That when I cast my votes, when I work through all of the issues that we're looking at as a nation, and when I make my decisions, and they are mine to make, I'm responsible to God for my decisions, they're mine to make. But when I do, the only question that I have, the only issue that I have on my heart is, did I give to Caesar what belongs to God? And I hope you will join me in rejecting political idolatry and never giving to Caesar what belongs to God. My identity is not in a donkey. My identity is not in an elephant. My identity is firmly rooted and secure in the lamb that was slain, Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we know that these are difficult times that we are living in. There is so much going on in the politics of America And so, Lord, we ask that you would, first of all, settle our hearts. May we not be entangled with our words. May we not be entangled with partisan politics. 
or self-righteous religion. Help us to be firmly established in our identity in you. Help us as we prepare to cast the votes that we cast, Lord. May we view this not from a particular party, but from a kingdom perspective. Lead us and direct us in those kind of things. We're grateful that you were with us. We're grateful that this is nothing new to you, God, that you're able to lead us and direct us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before you go, let me pray this blessing over you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance toward you and give you peace. God bless you. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. It's our desire to lead people to know Christ and to make him known. If you'd like to support the ministry of Hope Assembly, go to hopeassembly.org. Thank you for listening and God bless.